Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Leah Dietrich's essays and short fiction have been published by Lenny Letter, BuzzFeed, LitHub, and Bomb Magazine, among others. She is the author of Vanishing Twins, A Marriage, as well as a book of thank you notes entitled Thanks, 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 spelled T-H-X, 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 Thank Goodness for Everything. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and Los Angeles, California. Born in Lubbock, Texas, Kimberly King Parsons received her MFA from Columbia University. Her fiction has been published in the Paris Review, Best Small Fictions 2017, Black Warrior Review, No Tokens, Ninth Letter, and the Kenyon Review, among others. Please join me in welcoming Kimberly and Leah to Skylight Books. so much for coming out. It's so great to see all of these friendly faces. Um, let me move this over. Lee, yeah. Is that better? Okay. Leah's going to read first. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for inviting me. It was really Leah flew down to... from Portland, which is so wonderful. And so did you. So yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, yeah. But yeah, it's great. It's great that you're here. I'm so happy to see you yeah. in this new space. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So um, I'm going to read from my book, Vanishing Twins, a memoir, and, or a marriage, and it is a memoir. And I'm just going to read a little part toward the end um, that deals with language and um, merging with another person and is... I guess the only thing you need to know if I'm setting it up is that I am at this moment in an open relationship and exploring a new relationship with a woman and also like dealing with the, the existing relationship that I had with my husband. I'd heard immersion was the best way to learn a language. So while she was staying with me, I'd asked that Elena only speak Spanish. But it wasn't just language. I wanted to immerse myself in her. We conversed in rudimentary sentences, and I'd watch her mouth and mimic her, making the th sounds for the C's and Z's as they do in Spain, even though it felt wrong, like a speech impediment. I watched her face as I spoke to see whether the words I chose made sense, changing them midstream if her eyes squinted or she opened her mouth to correct me. When she spoke too quickly, her Spanish sounded like gibberish, and nothing in her face helped me decode it. I'd follow her eyeline to a chair or to my wristwatch sitting on the bedside table, trying to find meaning in the objects she settled on. Something about my watch? I'm not always talking about what I'm looking at, she said. The words snapped me like a rubber band. She was getting impatient with me, her student, and I was impatient too. I wanted our needs to be magically understood and met. I wanted us to be fluent in each other. In the psychology of twinship, the psychologist Ricardo Ainsley says that our desire for simple, automatic relationships, for sameness, is the desire to return to the relationship we had with our mother in the womb. He calls it symbiotic return. It's what we all look for in partners. We wish to return to a symbiotic relationship. That is a relationship characterized by a lack of self-other differ differentiation in which one's needs are magically understood and met. The original symbiotic relationship is between mother and child, but Ainsley suggests that with twins, it can also be between baby and baby. There's an experience of self and other as being one, a complete closeness, a sense of immersion in another person that feels whole and complete and almost ideally satisfying. Almost ideally satisfying. This troubles me. If diving headfirst into the pool of another person and sinking deep to their depths can yield only an almost ideal satisfaction, where can you find something total and absolute? Elena smoked a lot. In the States, she rolled cigarettes with tobacco and pot since she couldn't get hash. She always had rolling papers close at hand, tiny slips of paper, delicate leaves in her pocket, her bag, her mouth. After we'd met, I'd been struck with the idea that I would write a novella inspired our, by our relationship, and rolling papers seemed like the perfect thing to write it on. They were sturdy enough to be carried around, but easily disintegrated by fire or saliva. They invited a kind of telling I might not have been capable of on more permanent stock. I told Elena I would give the novella to her to smoke, and then there would be no remnant of it, 
It would become part of her the way she'd become part of me. When Eric and I were in Paris before he'd left for New York, I looked for an ashtray to use for my project because they're nearly impossible to find in the States. Initially, my search hadn't yielded anything but souvenir ones with the French flag or a picture of the Eiffel Tower. Then one afternoon, when Eric and I returned to our rented flat, I noticed that the shop next door sold an array of white ceramic objects in every shape and size, salt and pepper shakers, teacups, platters, tart pans, ramekins, tiny pitchers for cream. Inside, I found the perfect ashtray, square and pure white, with space to rest one cigarette on each side. Eric bought a soap dish. It was also white and unblemished, a quiet object. He said he'd been looking for one for some time. They were like fraternal twins, the soap dish and the ashtray. One a cradle for cigarettes, dirty sexual objects. The other for soap, a cleansing tool, a milky weapon of erasure. Maybe Eric and I subconsciously meant to give these gifts to each other, but instead bought them for ourselves. As I write it now, it's difficult for me to see the word ashtray and not read it as a stray. Thank you so much. Thank you. When I was on the plane on the way down, I thought about that part, um, which is funny because I didn't know what you were going to read, but the part where you say, sometimes I'm not talking about what I'm looking at, or she says, sometimes I'm not talking about what I'm looking at, which is so beautiful. Um, thanks so much to Maddie and everybody here for having us um, in this beautiful space. I've never been here before. Um, I'm just going to read, I'm so doped up on NyQuil right now, by the way, <laughs> just so you know. I've been shaking a lot of hands, um, which is great. Um, but uh, I'm going to read just the first part of a story called Foxes, um, and you don't need to know anything. Here it goes. What's worth happening happens in deep woods, or so my daughter tells me. Her plot lines. In the deep woods, someone is chasing, someone else is getting hacked. Hatchets are lifted, brought down, down, down. Men stutter blood onto snow. A cast of animals, some local, some outlandish, show up to feast on the bits. The bitty bits, she'll say, the tasty rings. Good luck diverting her. Good luck correcting or getting a word in once she gets going. It's gruesome, but this type of storytelling, I've been assured, is perfectly normal among children her age. I have a fat stack of books concerned with the inner lives of little girls. I have glossy pamphlets, full-color articles I've taken from waiting rooms. Her stories may be distasteful, but my daughter is happiest describing dark, spattered worlds. Routine is what's important. All the experts agree. Stability. So tonight is the same. Woods it is, I say, when she takes me by the wrist. I'm the first to admit it. I tune her out. I know there are foxes in her stories. I know there are men. She misses the dogs, maybe. She misses her father. She's an excitable kid, prone to rushed speech. Truthfully, she spits. I'm told this mess is evidence of a rich mind. Doctors say it, teachers. My girl has strands of dazzling beads hidden in that throat. She pulls them up from somewhere rich, way in the back. The tent she's fashioned is small and drab, a sagging thing posted by a pair of bar stools. Soiled, pulled straight from our beds, these drooping sheets are my daughter and myself layered, fitted and flat. She scurries inside, whistles for me. I bunch up and crawl through, hem in hand, nude hose flashing, nude pumps kicked off. The air inside is damp, trapped and sharp from her socked feet. My cheap and not cheap perfumes mix and float. I'm taking too long to settle. My daughter's big wet eyes are over there in the dark where I can't see them, rolling at me while I struggle. My friction drags dust and old fur up from the carpet. I've been meaning to vacuum, but the machine is in the upstairs closet, full with a heavy bag, a whole skein of orange yarn caught around one of the bristles. My daughter sighs. Patience is a muscle, I remind her. Hers is puny, a weak slick of lavender. My knees don't bend how they used to. My head is doming the roof. Her flashlight clicks on, catches a universe of grit and leftover dog. There's Bit-Bit and Rowdy and Poco turning in the air, specks of my daughter and me, of my fool ex-husband. 
our old family filthy and granular. Ready, she says. Deep in the woods, the night is running. From whom, I ask my daughter. From let me tell it, she says. She's not going to like it, but I've forgotten something crucial, an important part of our routine. Half a second, I say. I reverse scoot, wreck against a bar stool, threaten the entire design. My daughter hisses. Bass awkward is what the fool would call this maneuver, and he wouldn't be wrong. I'm quick at the wet bar. A dirty glass is pretty clean when you're the only one who uses it, when you enjoy the same drink every time. There's scarlet lipstick globbed on the rim, all me. I get back in the tent before my daughter's feelings are hurt. Her light catches cut crystal in my hand, scatters blue and yellow sparks. Sherry, I say. It doesn't need to be said, but I like the word. A secretary's drink, a middle-class nightcap. She knows I'm finished forever with the red-topped bottles and the black-topped bottles, the plastic bottles with the tops I lost, bottles that left clear sludge in every coffee mug in this house. My daughter beams my face like a cop. I take a sip, dainty, then lift the sheet, break the seal. I push my drink under, outside, but not away. This is me being responsible. I tuck myself in at the wrist, a cold hand out to touch the beaded glass. Just cherry. By all means, I tell her, go on. My daughter's teeth are gray with white flecks. When she tells, foam gathers in her corners, drips in ribbons under her chin. She spews. My only job is not to flinch. Flashlit, she looks nothing like me. Deep in the woods, the night is running. He will do whatever it takes to get back home. Her teeth are my fault, weak dentin on my side of the tree. Our photo albums are full of snarled smiles, gum disease going back through the ages, white sores and also clicky jaws, people predisposed to clench and do damage even as they slept. Plus, my daughter's precious grape soda is corrosive, I'm told. I push water and milk, but she fights me. She may not be pretty, but my girl's brain is just fine. It is. She dodged the worst genes somehow. Her father, the fool, was a man who broke the binding of the biggest ever book of party jokes, kept the glue-crusted pages paper-clipped or rubber-banded, dog-eared in his glove compartment, crammed into his blue jeans. The fool said, what's black and white and, wait, wait, <laughs> then fumbling, dull flipping. I'm not much better. At my daughter's age, I folded my failures into textbooks, blamed broken chalk for my public mistakes. Even now, I count the months on my knuckles and navigate the world by making an L out of one hand. I've got country smarts, the fool used to say, his arm deep in some majestic carcass he'd tracked for days and shot for fun. It's not the fault of the deplorable towns where the fool and I grew up, him in the bleak piney woods near the penitentiary, me where Texas bludgeons Oklahoma in a county known for making glue. Both of us were jaundiced preemies. Both of us were nursed on evaporated milk instead of formula, sucked on toys coated with lead paint. Whether it's nature or nurture, for people like the fool and me, there is a long beat between learning something and knowing it. For us, answers come later, when we're far away from the question, if they come at all. He makes money, lots of it, which obscures his deficiencies. I overcompensate, read what I can, take expert advice. At least I know what I don't know, which is more than I can say for the fool. Deep in the woods, the night is running. He will do whatever it takes to get back to his family. The woods are full of enemies, hooded men setting traps, wearing black cloaks, men with needle-nose pliers. But the night is unstoppable. He has been on the move for so long. He has leaped out of snares, set fire to cloaked men. He has turned pliers around on the bad guys, ripped their eyelids off in self-defense. I'm not sure how my daughter managed it, but in this altogether different deplorable town, awful for nicer reasons, spring breakers and prefab houses, eggy smelling tap water, she is the best and brightest in her young class. I've got a bumper sticker that says, ask me about my honor student. She comes home with her backpack full of flashcards, arms cuffed in rolled up poster board, she taught the dogs, when we still had the dogs, to sit in Spanish. Eureka, she shrieks three, four times a night. This house is nothing like the mobile homes the fool and I grew up in, full of boilerplate poverty and the lazy rage that comes with it. 
me fighting my sisters for stolen ketchup packets, the fool dunking his dingy little brothers in week-old bathwater. My girl has a writing desk and an electric pencil sharpener. She lists endangered species over alphabet soup, says she will be an architect and a veterinarian and an astronaut and a mommy. Shampoo-horned, she sings a song of South American capitals, sketches the water cycle on a steamy shower door. When I'm toweling her off, I trace cursive letters on her back, sweet little notes just for her. No matter how fast I spell them out, she never misses a word. Through those teeth, my daughter tells me about baobab trees. Have you heard of our ecosystem? She asks when I tuck her in. Have you heard of my inner beauty and my outer beauty? Thank you so much. Thank you. That's one of my favorite stories from the book, although I really love all of the stories. Oh, well, great. <laughs> um, and I wanted to start out by talking about the fact that I recently moved from L.A. to Portland, like, about a year and a half ago. And when I um, knew that I was going to be moving up there, I, like, typed into Twitter, like, Portland writer woman. <laughs> and Kim came up. There you go. <laughs> and so I invited her to get a drink with me. Um, like a couple of weeks after I moved there and I feel like it was one of those times where you get together with someone and you feel like you already know them and you have so much in common. We were born three days apart on different years, but, and I, and then, you know, my book was about to come out and she had gone to grad school and knew all this stuff about like books and how they're made. And like, although your book had, you know, you had a book deal, but your book hadn't come out yet. And so I felt very much like she was like this, you know, person that I could learn a lot from, but also as I started to do the, um, like stuff for, you know, my book coming out, she was like, let me interview you. Let me like write something. And she was so generous and because I read your book and it was good. Oh, well, that's thank why. you. But that's you know nice. that there's something that has a lot to do with it. Right. Cause I feel I like if that. I had read your book and was like, Oh, I might've been like, uh, well, let's get another drink well, later. Still. But yeah, thank yeah. you. Yes, but I was just so taken with your generosity. And then when I finally, like a year later, got to read your galley, I was just so struck by how generous you are with all of your characters. Because, you know, as like I've heard you say, a lot of them sort of on the surface seem kind of despicable. And yet you, I loved like every character in your book, you know, even the man who, especially in this period of like me too stuff, like even the man who seems gross, who's having this relationship with this really young girl or woman, but I felt for him, you know, and you just have such a, um, a talent for, you know, empathy. And I wondered how you, how you feel like that came about both in your life, but also maybe in other if you had other examples in writing that you saw that in? I mean, I think in my life, it's from growing up in a place where um, I, even from a really young age, wanted to like get the fuck out of there. And I didn't know how to put words to it necessarily, but I knew something was off in the place. But then also knowing that I was a loved person and I love my parents and I love my siblings and they we have completely different viewpoints, but I, um, I feel like I wanted to try to write characters who, not that they're, not that they're abusive like that one guy in that story, but but they're politically maybe. Um, but I, I wanted to write stories that could get into the heads of these people who were sort of fringe characters and to make um, a reader identify with them in a way. And I'm sure that Dennis Johnson's Jesus Son had a huge amount to do with that because reading that book, there are moments where you're like he's. In a later story, he's like looking in a window and there's a woman taking her clothes off and it's like, I thought about raping her, but I didn't. And you're like, how do I still like this person? And like, that to me is such an amazing talent to, to make a character that is despicable or that's making all these bad decisions or making mistakes and then to write them in such a way that as the reader, we understand why they're like that. And I think that it's an important lesson. Currently, it's the only way I can get through my family life in some ways is by saying, okay, you know, my parents had this like, Trump sign that they had pulled out of the front yard and hid in a bedroom when I came to visit, which was nice that they took it out of the front yard, but it was in the closet where I was putting my, my clothes. And so I see that it has dirt all over it. So it was like out there, but, but were there, but I love them and they're wonderful people. And like, we are completely incompatible about so many things. And I wanted to try to capture some of that for these characters or to try to understand where they're coming from in that way. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that because I do feel like that's what the world needs right now. Um, another thing that I thought about in terms of like 
kind of uh, comparing my own writing to yours, like in a certain way of like, we've spent a lot of time talking about writing and about craft and I have written, you know, mainly nonfiction and you have chosen to write fiction. And there was an evening where we were hanging out with a mutual friend who, and she was like, what's your mother's teach you? And, and I was like, but there has to be something. But Kim had a great answer, like, right off the bat, and it was? She taught me how to lie. Which I was like, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> and my mom never lies, and ever. My mom is, like, so truthful and, like, all about it. I mean, I don't know that it. it's a great thing. No, but, <laughs> but I think as far as becoming a creative person, and that's what I wanted, like, I wanted to ask you about that, too, about, like, how your mom raising you or, like, you know, making that statement just sort of, like, right off the cuff, how you think that informed your interest in fiction? She was just, like, you can do whatever you want. You just can't tell everybody about it all the time. And you have to hide shit from people. <laughs> and But, I mean, and so she would say, like, one of the things that a character does this in, the, in a story, um, you can buy whatever you want, but you stop in the garage and you rip off all the tags of the stuff and you have a laundry basket in the back seat that you put all the new clothes in and you just carry it in the house and that way you don't get questioned about what you bought like that kind of stuff or just like she would she was supposed to like this is the other thing too because it's about rebelling against control and she's like no one's gonna tell me what the fuck to do I do what I want but then she would sort of my dad would say like oh you know you sh everyone should get 30 minutes of cardio per week and then so she had this like machine she called her horse which is also in the book um that it was like a like a like a some kind of a weird like aerobic machine and she would just do this to make it get the 30 minutes while she would be like doing real estate deals on the phone because <laughs> she's like I don't have time for that shit but I loved that and I loved that she was just like I'm gonna do what I want to get the things that I want, even though, you know, who knows, like, she had different, she has a very different relationship with my dad than I have with mm -hmm. my partner, but, mm -hmm. but I think I saw that, and I sort of saw the good parts of that to say, you can kind of do whatever you want, even if you have to finesse things a little mm -hmm. bit. And is that why you feel like you prefer to write fiction as opposed to writing, like, personal, I know you've struggled, like, with writing personal essays yeah. to publicize this book, and... Yeah, I don't like writing personal essays because I keep having this voice in my head that's like at the end of every line, like, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Would you still get that in fiction? But it's a little bit less. I don't know. Just because I'm like, why do, why do people care what I did? Like personally what I did. But I feel like these characters, I can be removed a little bit. Um, but also I just do like a sort of blanket protection because I have children and I have, um, not that you can't do that. And I feel like there is a certain bravery that goes along with it. And I respect and admire people so much who do it. Um, I, and I might still do it. I just haven't yet. Yeah. Um, because it's nice to be able to say, like, all this stuff in this book that is straight up my mom, I could be like, hey, that's fiction. And, and she just has to take my word for it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is lying to get what I want, exactly. which I learned from her. Exactly. Um, I wanted to, like, as I was reading the stories, I, I feel like you have a really knack for first lines and last lines, but maybe first lines in particular. And... Um, I I wanted to read like one or two of my favorites real quick. This one is from the story We Don't Come Natural to It. And it's about two women that are um, sort of like competitively starving themselves. And then the first line is, Suki and me, we're hungry and mean. We've got bitter jewels buzzing in our guts. I'm like, that's so amazing. And then this one. From the light will pour in, she had her heart set on a coast. It didn't matter to her which one, but we'd started to limp into the slow middle of nowhere, which ends up being Texas? Dallas, yeah. Dallas. And so talk a little bit maybe about, um, so that brings me to when we talked about these first lines and you talked about your experience writing in the writing workshops with Gordon Lish, which, right. you know, as a person who was like a huge Raymond Carver fan as I was, you know, like starting to write and then, you know, understanding like how much Gordon Lish probably had an effect on his writing or maybe made it what it was that I loved about it. And so when I knew that you had like been in his workshop, I was like, oh my God, I want to hear everything about that. So tell me, tell us a little bit about like some of the things that you learned in his workshop or how it affected your writing. Yeah. I mean, so, um, Gordon is a divisive, uh, polarizing character in the literary world, but he's, fucking amazing and I aesthetically my taste lines up with his so much that I don't I mean he he is he can be intimidating and awful and scary and he also will bring stuff out of you that you never thought you could have and um 
and he's also really, really funny, as I have a couple of workshop people in here who could, who could talk about that. He's really funny and fun to be around. And so all of the, like, there's sort of anxiety when you're going around the room trying to read your first line. Um, yeah, it's terrifying, but also you can hear stuff. Everything is done in the class um, orally, so you're standing up and you're reading a line. And his whole thing is you just have to start with one true line. That's it. Um, but if you get that one line, then you're going to be using recursion to write the rest of the story. So all you have to do is come up with the one good enough line, and you'll hear it when you get it, and you'll know it, and you'll feel it when you get it. And so sometimes you, what you have in front of you is like garbage, and you know that as it's getting closer to you. And you're like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And in that moment, there's this grace that happens where you're like, oh, I have to, no, this isn't it at all. I have to change this around. And it's something about the pressure that happens, and of course, I went into this whole, went to his workshop buying into it. I was like, I'm gonna follow all your rules. So we're not gonna have a lot of adverbs. We're not gonna have character names. Like I wanna do it. I wanna experience the full thing. And then of course, when I came out of it, I had to sort of find my footing again and say, well, which of the rules are kind of like not gonna work for me and which of them are. Um, but I, I have nothing but gratitude for him. And um, I don't know if we're friends right now. Sometimes we are and sometimes we aren't, but that's fine. Um, but, uh, but he's amazing and, and uh, I learned so much in those summers. Um, and I had been influenced by him from the time that I was like 18 years old because I was reading Amy Hempel and I was reading Christine Scott and I was reading all these writers that I loved and then I would just trace them all back to him. And one of my first teachers was a, a Dr. Robert Nelson who I guess he taught, Gordon taught in Chicago for a little while and so he was in his, but Gordon doesn't remember him, which is sad, um, but, but he was like, Gordon's the best and you have to read his stuff. Um, read his writers, not necessarily his own work. Um, and so, which is another story. I actually, there's quite a few that I really love, but it's a different story. Um, but so, yeah, I have nothing but positive things about that time in my life. It, it certainly was hard to start writing again after being in that class. There's like all these rules and what writer doesn't want rules? Yeah. Because you have every possibility. You could write the sentence a thousand ways, and it's so nice to have someone saying to you, no, you can't do this, 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 this. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, well, I'll try that. And then to see some good stuff come out of it felt really, really good. So do you still um, rely on some of those rules when you're writing? Like, do you still provide that structure for yourself now? Yeah, some of them. Or I still do, like, where the first sentence comes from might be different, um, and it might not adhere to all those rules, but I still always work sentence to sentence, and I always go backwards. Mm -hmm. So like that's such a comforting feeling to know that everything you need is already in front of you. And so you're not adding new shit, you're just saying, well, what did I already put? So if the first line, the first story that I wrote in his class that was like clicked for me was um, the story Fiddlebacks where the line was, this house is a house where you shake out your shoes. And then it was just like, okay, so what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> like, what does that mean you shake out your shoes? Oh, because there's these bugs in the shoes. Like everything has to go back to danger and to the shoes and to the darkness and to the fear in that house. And I think once I figure that out, um, it like opened something for me. Yeah. And so there's like to writing those first lines and having them sound right or click or whatever, like there implies the sort of like rhythm or musicality. Yeah. And I know that you also have been a musician. Yeah. And I wondered like maybe talk a little bit about the way that you write as a mother, you know, of two young children. And, and then also like maybe after that, I would love to hear a little bit more about like your past as a musician. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, I have two small children who live with me, um, and and they are amazing and wonderful and super distracting. And so the way that I come up with most stuff is just by sound, um, because it's the kind of thing I can repeat over and over while I'm like driving the car or like running the bath. And um, and I know if I'm onto something because it sticks. So like sometimes I wake up and I'm like, this is a great line, and then you forget it, and you're like, well, that wasn't very good. Because if it was good, you would have remembered it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm listening to the way that something sounds, and I'm sort of saying it over and over again like you would repeat a chorus of a song. Mm -hmm. And that's how I used to write bad songs also. Um, I was in just like weird bands like whale sounds there was we went like we went in two directions <laughs> there's like I was like let's do indie rock and they were like or whale sounds and then I got like steamrolled into whale sounds um but we were we would do like different weird synthesizer stuff which I liked um but I was always a singer mm -hmm. um and I can play the xylophone pretty well nice um but yeah and so I so I definitely feel like there's something about sound or the thing that stays with me tends to come from 
sound first. Yeah. Do you listen to music at all when you write? No, I can't. Yeah. I have to have total silence. And in fact, I'm always just like reading the line that I just wrote out loud a thousand times like a crazy person. So I can't even work in a coffee shop or like normal people. I have to be like in my house. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I don't know. It's inconvenient sometimes, but <laughs> it's just what it is. Um, I, so in the beginning, there's like the first story is about a woman who's dating a, a doctor. He's like a becoming a doctor, yeah, like he's a resident yeah. and she has like body image issues. And then the last story is about a, it's called Starlight and is about a woman and a coworker who go to like a seedy motel to do a bunch of drugs and like pretend they're not like they call off a of work or whatever. And I find like in those two stories bookending the collection and like Jill is the woman in the in the hotel maybe I can read something that Jill says um there's like just some interesting bookending going on with like uh body image and like self-conception and I was once I read these then I guess I can ask you my question so in the beginning story like the first thing that you kind of hear about the main character she's like I'm wearing control top tights over control top underwear and then uh her, but her, although I know that you, I feel like you feel like the, the doctor is, is not a cool guy. I kind of think he's okay. People like him. I don't understand it. I'll tell you why. People like him. Because he says, oh. moment. <laughs> oh, sorry. People are like, oh, he has like moments of dig he does. dignity. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. But I, I think people are more generous with him than I am. Okay. So, um I'm sorry, I'm like fucking right. this up. But at any rate, at one point, uh, this is something that felt really familiar and was like a great way of sort of describing her where she says, can't I help you relax, I say? I hate the desperate catch in my voice, the frantic feeling I get when he needs space. And then later, I ask again why he's even with me. Because you're so independent, he deadpans. See, I feel my worst. face fall. He gets out of bed, wraps his arms around the biggest part of me. He's sorry in a way. You're funny for one thing, he says. Funny equals smart. I'm no MD, I say. I let him sink. I let myself sink into him, try to store this feeling for later. I'm no RM or EMT. I've got none of the letters. There are lots of different types of intelligence, babe, he murmurs into my hair. That's something smart people say to dumb people, I say. So again, I do feel like he's trying to... Basically, she's one of those people who, like, it doesn't matter what you say to her. Right. She's always going to hate herself. And then so later, this woman, Jill, she also the opposite tickles me. Perhaps. I fucking love her. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, like, in her bra and underwear at 9 a.m., like, doing a lot of cocaine. And then she's, <laughs> she sat on the floor, scissored her legs. Pay attention, Jill said. These are moves from the future. <laughs> she's really funny. And then, like, this other part, so she makes a playlist for their, like, drug, drug, uh, day. drug day, and she says, and he goes, this playlist is a masterpiece. Your taste is, he brought his fingers to his mouth and kissed them. I know, she says. Seriously, I keep waiting for it to suck. It won't, Jill said. It makes me fall in love with myself. <laughs> yeah, and I, like, think that's so amazing, and, and I'm just sort of, like, I, I wondered... Um, as a woman who de who deals with a body and a self conception and struggles, yeah. I was like, when did you write those two stories chronologically? So um, the guts was a, was old, like that was an older story. Starlight was the last one, and it was the fastest to write. Um, it, it, like the arc of it happened on a train ride, like about the time that they would be in a like in a like in real time almost. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I feel like a brain in a jar normally, like in the world. Like, I feel like bodies are weird. I don't know why we need them. Um, so I, I am interested in characters who are fixated on the body or because I also think that they're all trying to get below the body. They're trying to get to that thing that's the real person, which I don't think that any of them believe has anything to do with outward appearance. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that a lot of the characters are just like, how can I get how can I get into you? How can I, like their bodies are just cages keeping them apart. Um, and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. So for Jill, she's like, look at my underwear and like, look at my moves. And then for, uh, for Sheila, she's like, you know, has the opposite problem where she's like, oh my God, don't look at me. You know, mm -hmm. um, even though he seems to be very happy with her, with her body. Yeah. Um, she's not. Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, they were written pretty far apart, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, how many years, just out of oh curiosity? Oh, my God. It's so embarrassing. Wow. Um, the So, the first stories were in 2005, and the last story was in 2018. Um, well, yeah. Like, yeah. pretty heavy, heavy revisions were added yeah. in 2018. So, that's not very great for, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Well, this I new thing like is coming super fast. Well, I feel like it took that long to get them to, like you said, to be where they are. I was trying to figure a lot of stuff out. I think, I think if I did it tomorrow again, it would be faster. I hope. I don't know. But... Well, I appreciate you talking to me about all these things, and I know that maybe you guys want to ask questions as well, so I will open it up to the floor. Yes. Are you writing your story? Do you always know where you're going with it, or do you sort of like figure that out as the characters begin revealing stuff? Do you have something that's like supposed to advance? Yeah, I never know where I'm going, ever. Um, I'm always just going sentence to sentence, but then at a certain point, sometimes it's early, or sometimes it just depends. I, I have like a f- sort of flash where I know the last line and then I'm working up towards that line. So then it's just a matter of justifying it. Um, so I'll know like, they got to kill the deer. I don't know. There's no deer deaths, but whatever. Like something will like reveal itself to me and I'm like, we have to get to that point. And then you're like, when do we bring the deer? I don't know, like whatever. So I just know that I have to get to that point. And it really comes sort of like by gut in the same way that the first line comes where I'm just sort of like, this is where it ends. So I never changed. I had like a couple of things where my editor was like, are we sure that it ends here? And I was like, yes, we're 100% sure. That's absolutely the ending. And sometimes she, she would be like, well, I don't know. And then I would say, okay, because I messed it up earlier. Like that's what happened. It wasn't that the ending was wrong. It was that I hadn't deserved it yet. So I would have to work a little harder to get to it. Um, but yeah, I never have an idea, which is problematic when you're writing a novel. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible. So you have to have some sense of the shape of the project. Otherwise, you're just doing a lot of nothing. But yeah. Yeah. Sure. I had this really lucky, really, I was in New York and I um, felt really scared to leave New York because I felt like I was going to not lose all my publishing connections, which I didn't really have any, but I thought I did. And so um, I moved to Portland and then suddenly had more uh, affordable um, childcare and more like time to write, actually write. So I was able to get a lot more stuff done in Portland. And then I went to Tin House, um, the summer workshop for Tin House, which is if you if you don't know about it and if you're a writer, you should definitely look into it. It's just this really great, intensive, week-long writing workshop. And one of the things that they have there is you talk for two minutes to an agent. And I didn't have a collection yet. Um, I didn't think at the time. But they make you do this two minutes, so you have to kind of bullshit like you do have something. <laughs> so I went and talked to this agent who's, I had seen a lot of her other um, authors and they, they were so good. And all we did was just talk about books. Like I don't even think we talked about my thing. But then at the end she was like, you should send me your collection. And I was just like, well, I'm never doing that. And then I <laughs> went home and told a friend that she had said that. I was like, I'm sure she says that to everyone. And she was like, no, I mean, but what does it, like, what does it matter? And so I like drank a big old glass of wine and sent it off. And um, and she's ended up being like just the best. I, it's so lucky, and it's also I don't I feel like it's a bad story to tell because I know people spend like years of their life querying agents, and I feel like I don't know why this happened, but I feel like it was supposed to happen that way. But also, I was working for like a dozen years without like not barely getting published at all and just doing it just because I was like, I'm going to be doing it anyway, and like having a day job and living my life. Um, so it was amassing stuff. I just didn't. I needed somebody to force me to show it to someone because I wasn't. I would have never shown it to anyone. I would still be, just I would have like 30 stories and I would just be having them in my house. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it worked out really well. And then, um, and then she's so great. She was like, she read some of it and she's like, hey, I just, I'm, I just started it. Don't make any moves. And I was like, I don't have any moves. I got nothing. <laughs> and then she ended up selling it within like two months. And then. It's crazy, and so yeah, she's wonderful. Meredith Kappel Simonoff, she's great. Yes. Can you talk about how the acceptance and sentence process has changed as you've moved from short fiction to a novel? Yeah. So with the novel, there is still there are like goals, I guess. So. Um, are what I call buckets, which is a weird thing to call. I don't know. So I have like a bucket, and I'm like in this bucket. Um, She's got to like, 
I know there's like uh, like the receptionist at the dental hygienist office that she likes, so we've got to have them talk or something. So it'll be like hygienist bucket, and then I'll like write towards that feeling in a or whatever is that a feeling? Is a hygienist a feeling? I don't think it is. Yes. Um, but I'll write towards the goal of like they have to talk, and so I'm trying to move certain pieces or like. There's a section, like the book is about hoarding, and so there's like, which is a great, it's a great thing, just everything, it yeah. all goes in. Um, but So there's like a, a section that's like hoarding, and like mom hoarding, and so then it'll be like, I'm gonna do more stuff about what's in her house. And so it'll just be like, I spend the day or the week, or, or like however long, just working on that section. And then I'm trying, I mean, I'm doing it. Um, I, I piece them all together, and then I'll see which stuff doesn't really stick and then that falls away and then you just keep sort of moving. So I'm still doing, within the actual document, it's still sentence to sentence just like by sound, like acoustics, but then the actual goals are a little bit more focused because otherwise, like, it would just be a nightmare, I think, so. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, hold on, wait, let's see. No, man, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, singing is like pure to me and it's so nice and it's something that I do all the time constantly where I think I was just, you know, I've been doing this tour and so I've been staying with like lots of different friends and they're like, shut up. Because it's just the thing that I do that makes me feel good and it's not tainted by um, business or like, not that, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just for joy, it's just joyful and writing comes with so much, you know, like it's your job too. Um, and so I don't think I want it to ever be and I wasn't that good anyway, honestly. So um, the bands I was in were sort of stupid. But, um, but I like singing and it's fun and it brings me joy, but I don't think I want to be up for scrutiny anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Did you have a, yeah? So uh, your contentious, or the fact that your um, workshop, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the workshop was uh, a contentious figure, you think that affects Yeah, I think so, because I'm always rooting for the person who everyone hates and for the person who's misunderstood and for the person who is um, really true to themselves, even if that self is maybe a, like an asshole, just because I feel like there's something important about that. There's a, and it's important to listen to everyone and everyone deserves a voice on the page, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, my favorite relationships are complicated people. It's never gonna be just like, they're so wonderful. I mean, that's great too, but it's very nice to have someone who you're like, oh, they have a lot of problems too. Like, um, it's just, it's also because we all have a lot of problems and we're all just like holding it together. Um, so I feel like, yeah, sh certainly it did. And, I, and even, like I said, I mean, I, I don't know right now like where we're at in our friendship, but I still have so much respect for him. And people will be like, somebody just said like, he would be the worst, like if you could think of the worst person to invite to a dinner party, it would be Gordon Lish. And I was like, he's the best. <laughs> like, he's the most fun person. Like, but I think people don't know that because they're just, they only see the negative side, which is also persona. He puts it out there because he wants it to be out there. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like unlikable people who are like willing to be totally unlikable. It's kind of cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you too. Yeah, I was doing, um, I was, I had a master's in literature, I was doing Faulkner studies at, at the University of Texas at Dallas, and I wanted to write Faulkner criticism, and then I was like, why? <laughs> no, I was like, there's so much of it, like there's so, so much of it, and then I started to think maybe that wasn't my path, um, and I applied to a few PhD programs, and I applied to one MFA program, which was in New York, and um, my partner and I had just, at the time, like we got married, and then we both applied to schools in like different places and we immediately moved to separate states, which is crazy, but he was like, do your thing. Like, I'm gonna do my thing, you do your thing. And so we split up and moved to our different corners um, and it was a great experience for me. I know a lot of people, um, you know, it's complicated. Like, it, it's like up to the person, but it gave me a lot of time to write. Although I wasn't exactly productive then, I have to be honest, but I think it was setting the stage or it was doing something in there. And most importantly, it got me to New York, which was really important for me um, because that's where I met so many friends and so many people who I'm still super close with today and I'm, I don't regret any of it. Yeah. It was at Columbia. Yeah. Um,
Yeah, like every once in a while I'll mishear something somebody says, um, which will like set me down a path. Like there, in the first line of um, Guts, she says, um, when I start dating Tim, all of the sick, broken people in the world begin to glow. And that was because I heard someone say, um, or they begin to glow to, glow to her or something. And I heard a woman just say, oh, all the sick people go to me. But I heard it as a glow, and I was like, they glow to you? And then she was like, no, they go to me. And I was like, oh, right. Um, but the mishearing of it was so much cooler than the actual thing she said. Or like my kids say like the weirdest stuff. My, my son's like, do we have meat? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, in our bodies. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, but we can't eat it. And I'm like, nope. Um, but that kind of stuff that, like, it's just the weird approaches to language that you're like, it, it makes everything so, I'm always looking for, like, those psychedelic moments. So it's, whether it's mishearing something or um, just where suddenly the world is, like, amazing. And so I feel like, yeah, for sure, it goes the other way, too. Um, I would say it takes a lot of time. Like, I don't think I actually need this, do I? It took so much time, like, to write this book, years, like, six, seven years. Because, yeah, I mean, the events that I'm writing about in this book happened mainly in, like, 2008 to 10. And I, yeah, when I first wrote about them, they were plagued by all the things that you're talking about, like, not having enough distance, um, not taking other people and the story into consideration enough or like creating them as full characters and also not really like digging deep enough to be like what was I really feeling because I'm really good at like just covering all of that up on a day-to-day -day basis so I actually um, I kept a lot of journals during the times that I wrote about, and so I like reread all of them, or I reread all these saved like instant messages, transcribed them to try to like get back into those places, and also like transcribed my like husband's words and tried to like. It was so painful because I was looking back at this self of like ten years before me, like God, what an asshole, you know, like. But and it was. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think I could have done it without like that really tedious work. And that's the only answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. This is a question for either of you, both of you. Um, but, um, and to both moms. Um, I'm curious about how, um, if you can quantify them, um, like how being a mom um, has affected what it has revealed about yourself as an artist um, and how it can be, or if it is, an antidote to some of the stuff, pressure you put upon yourself as when you call yourself writers. Mm. Yeah, for me, like 100%, I, um, I never really had anything published before I had kids and I, um, I, would, I would dick around on the internet for like, hours and hours and hours and be just like, ooh, this is great, I'm writing. Or I would get like in these weird research rabbit holes of like, I was writing a, a historical novel and I was like, do pants have pockets back then? And like, what shape were the light bulbs? And like, that would be what I would do all day. And then I wasn't really making any progress at all. And then when I had kids, it was like, you have six hours and you have this overpriced babysitter and that's all the time you have. And so I had to like get to work. And so I did and I, cause I felt you feel so guilty, like you're leaving your children to go, you can't just then be on the internet all day, you can't only watch Drag Race, it's crazy. So um, so I was like, I have to actually get work done, so I did, and so that for me, it was, I, I don't think I would even have done any of this if it weren't for having that motivation, because I'm the kind of person who needs a lot of structure, because my natural tendency is to just be kind of a fuck up, so it was important to me to have that. Um, so there you have it. I don't know if that's the same. It is, I think it's somewhat similar, but I also like, for someone who has written so closely to my own life, I think that like having a kid has, well, I guess, first of all, publishing this book and having to go through the process of like um, getting my partner to be okay with me, like writing about our life and having like sort of some consent. And then now, you know, having 
like I can't, I don't feel like I can, I've evolved in that I don't feel that I can fall back on like my usual mode of creativity, which is just like, let's just mind my life or, you know, write about my life. Cause like my life is my daughter in a huge way right now. And she doesn't have the agency to tell me whether or not I can write about her life. And I don't feel comfortable at this point writing about her without some kind of, um, veil of fiction, you know, or pushing myself to kind of like use some of the themes, but like put them in other places. And so that I think is helping me grow as a, as an artist or writer, I guess, because of the fact that I just want to protect that relationship or trust, I guess, as long as I can. It's an obstruction. Obstructions are so helpful, like in all ways I find. So whether it's like, um, that you can write for these six hours a week and that's it. Then you, when you sit down to write, you have a lot to say, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's like you have children and you have to do this and this is your, I feel like having too much time or having too much freedom is really bad. And that's also part of why I like the Lish stuff so much just because it was somebody telling you like, here's exactly what you do. And then later you could be like, I don't think that I'm gonna mm -hmm. do that. But like, it's nice just to have sort of a set of rules to follow. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, oh. unless anyone has any other questions. Thank one. you, wait, Kim. Oh, wait, there's oh, one in the back. Sorry. Yeah, last one, yeah. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think so. It's hard to say. I, you know, I think, like, once you put yourself on a page or, like, paint yourself or whatever, you know, you're like, that's not me anymore. Right. It's not, like, it, it can only be certain picture, sketch, whatever, of me at that moment and informed by the person I was in those five years writing it, which would be different if I wrote it now. So it's yes and no. <laughs> One of my favorite writers, T. Kira Madden, talks about how everyone becomes a character in the book, even if it's memoir. Every, even the narrator, the I narrator is a character. And I feel like that's true just because when you're putting it it's just being synthesized in its craft, and so it's never going to be, it's not your diary, because if it was, it wouldn't be good, mm -hmm. right? But, I mean, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys thank all you for so coming. Thank you so much for Thanks, coming. Kim. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.